Welcome to Ways of Doing, How Women Work in Photography, a fast-forward podcast series. I'm Anna Fox, a photographer and professor of photography at University for the Creative Arts in Farnham, and I created Fast Forward with Karen Knorr in 2013 to promote and engage with women in photography across the globe. And I'm Maria Kapaeva. I'm an artist, and I have been working with Anna as a project manager on a Fast Forward since its start. And in this latest mini-series, we've been talking to women photographers as well as people from the industry about the different ways of working in photography. These conversations gives us some insights into how to make a living or how to subsidize and sustain a photography practice. As you'll hear, there are many ways of doing. This first episode focuses on collectives, collaborations, and photographic archives. How can women in photography work together and support each other? An inspiring example of collaborative working is the Maternal Fantasies project. And we will be talking with Magdalena Kalendegur, a Berlin-based artist and a member of Maternal Fantasies. They're a group of artists specifically thinking about motherhood and we are quite interested to understand more about working as a collective. Usually, like a collective has some people like-minded who uh, try to do something. And I'm one of the initiators as well of maternal fantasies. And it came out of my personal background that I had been teaching full-time for seven years in Cairo, Egypt, being a professional artist, and then returning to Germany in 2017 as a single mother. And the government told me, you won't get childcare because you don't have a job. And I was like, how should I find a job if I don't have childcare? And then on a personal subjective observation for me, like when I became a mother and I showed up in, at openings or other artist gatherings, which are mostly places for networking, I felt perceived as like the stupid mother who just cares about diapers. And on a personal level, I felt that there were no networks holding me and that there was no village in the Western world which would help me raise my son. So I initiated a meeting at a Berlin-based gallery and I was asking who would be interested to found a new working group to do some research on motherhood representation and who would be interested mostly to produce new images. From this first meeting evolved a group of 15, mixture between theorists, scientists and artists and then we were self-initiating a residency on the countryside because this is the other thing residencies are really important for artists to have a place to produce work and to get it out and very little residencies offered the possibility to bring your children along and for this reason we initiated our first residency together and from this situation of being seven artists ten children wanting to produce something came the idea of something we call the rotational care work model, which means like we give ourselves a basic grid on what we want to produce. And then we switch between the directors, the performers, the ones who take care of the children and so on. And we rotate all these positions. And it's a kind of non-hierarchical approach to art making. We were super lucky that these images we produced we got awarded an Advancement Award for Buskamp Foundation, having a first exhibition 
having production money and prize money and so on, and the residency place to host the next residency. And that was fundamental for us, that there was some kind of outside support who kept us producing in the first two, three years, which was amazing. We have um, different styles of working modes. One part is the residency, which came out of the idea, it's really boring to go on a family holiday. Why don't go with like-minded people, more kids who can play with each other and produce something together. So this is an intense working holiday mode block. We need this kind of free space, artistic space, something that has nothing to do with our normal life. And from there, we can build new imaginaries. A lot of people talk about this working collaboratively, but actually there is a lot of challenges which you can face because you put together like a few professionals with own visions, with own ideas. How you manage as a collective to balance all of that? What was your way of avoiding the conflict and finding the solutions uh, that you can work in the longer term together also? It's not like one-off. What I found was the most helpful is that we were all super pragmatic, like really coming from the practice of combining art, motherhood, life, precarity. And so this is at the beginning from each project always very fundamental to us to assess what does every individual person wants to do with this new project? Where should it go? And what can she contribute to that? At the beginning in the enthusiasm, we always thought we could rotate tasks equally. But then after one, two years, we found, no, it's not possible. Like, for example... Things like doing the Instagram or writing this newsletter or the administration part, lots of people just don't want to do. They just have the time for the gatherings and that's what they can give and that's fine. So, But then we need to compensate the ones who does this extra labor. So it's a constant negotiation and a constant renegotiation. We have been to lots of rounds of conflict and what I found really interesting and really helpful in that is that they are not like a personal failure or you are not like responsible because something causes conflict. It's just like part of it. Before, at the beginning, we had so much idealism and we thought, oh, we are so well said. We like each other. We know each other. We will never have any conflict. But I mean, like, how stupid is that? And how like financially you managed to develop the work? Is it something you as a collective applying for some grants or everyone's contributing? Do you have any financial model to make it all happen? Institutions just don't know how to distribute money if it's a collective for seven people. But we were invited to host more than 40 workshops or 50 presentations nationally and internationally. So this is again what mother artists can do. So we did a kind of refinancing, a portion was um, redistributed to our collective production money. And from that, we, for example, financed the publication. I mean, what I think should be a, a standard in any of these applications when you think about budget, that childcare is a post of the production process. I think that would help. And then, I mean, in our case, lots of times we made it like really, really far, but always in the last round, we couldn't still get it. It collides with the image of the art world, who still looks 
for an individual artist genius who produces something out of himself, which is like everyone knows it's wrong. The only way we can fight this perception is by just doing. But I don't know how we can change it on an institutional level, for example. I want to bring attention to um, the book which you, uh, as Maternal Fantasies, published. The book is called uh, Reassembling Motherhood on Radical Care and Collective Art as Feminist Practices. I would say it's a kind of raw summary of what we have done, a kind of mixture between reflective essays on the practice by individual authors, as well as excerpts from our collective automatic writing sessions, our thinking of motherhood and care work through the different perspectives of the individual members. But it combines as well the artworks that we have produced and performative exercises that we have developed and that can be used as scores by others. So it's a kind of mixture between an artist's book and reflective essays. For people who, for example, listening and thinking, oh, I would love to start something collectively, I would like to work collaboratively, what you start to think in the beginning, what is important? I think the most important question is to ask yourself, what do you want to give into the collective? What can you give and how much of it? Everyone has to be aware at the beginning, and this is the beauty of it, there is lots of enthusiasm. But I think this should be a constant renegotiation and on what to give and what to receive. I call it a non-idealized version of care. Keep your collectives flexible and adaptable to your life circumstances. I think that's very important. I can't agree more with you, Magdalena, that being flexible and being able to change and adapt in your own work and the way of working and way of doing is very essential and actually freed you more in what you do. And also it gives you a balance in your various roles as a, for example, like parenting, artist or academic, whoever you are. Another example of women in photography supporting each other is ZAFP. Zimbabwe Association of Female Photographers. Cynthia Matonaze is a documentary photographer based in Zimbabwe and is one of the photojournalists who set up the support network in 2011. So it was the four of us, Angela, Davina and Nancy and myself, that identified a need in Zimbabwe at the time that most spaces were not conducive for female photographers. So we decided to create an association that would help develop professionalism within our industry, but as well to give space to female photojournalists or documentary photographers. It seemed traditionally uh, photojournalism was dominated by men at the time. So bit by bit, there was a, you know, a small group of women that would have worked in a newsroom before and did photojournalism. So we wanted to create space outside of the newsroom as well for women to have careers. And is that how you all met each other in the newsroom? Actually, no. <laughs> we all went to the same photography school, but at different times. We went to the Market Photo Workshop in South Africa. Initially, what we needed obviously was money. We needed a, a website. We needed female photojournalists. And we needed work. So we started off 
by introducing ourselves to the broader community with an exhibition of our works. So our first exhibition was called Shutter Opener in 2013. And we also invited, you know, people that we thought were important to our work and what we were doing. In terms of my own career in, in photography, I think the ZAFP has helped me tremendously because uh, when I met these ladies, I was not a photographer. I hadn't gone to photography school and, you know, they welcomed me and encouraged me. They're the ones that, you know, told me about the Market Photo Workshop and I applied and I, I got in. So over the years, they've been a, a great support for me because, um, firstly, a network of female photojournalists working in the same country and in the same city is invaluable. We would go together to assignments and we could sit down and look at each other's images and give each other valuable feedback. And the good thing was that we were all at different stages in our career. So I had, you know, people that had gone to photography school maybe two or three years before I did. It was basically a network of women that could give each other constructive advice give each other free, you know, portfolio reviews. And if someone had an assignment and they needed, you know, an assistant or somebody to help them, I knew that I could call any one of those ladies. And if they were available, we would go to the assignment together. That's so interesting to hear about the value of the network as a kind of forum for discussion and support. Especially, I know you you even have to you know, leave the country if you want to get any training in photography. So you can also support each other that way. Possibly even, I don't know, if you lend each other equipment and things like that. Yes, we do. We do. Over the years in my career has gone, you know, in different directions. I used to work at a newsroom. In 2017, uh, during the coup not coup in Zimbabwe, so I was doing an assignment for the Wall Street Journal. So I was on my way back home to file my images and... At the traffic light, someone just came and smashed my car window and grabbed my bag and disappeared into the night. So I could finish my assignment because Lucy gave me her camera and I could finish all the other jobs that I had after that. As well as doing editorially commercial jobs, you also do your own personal projects, each of you. Do you fund those through your commercial work? How do you make those happen? With all of us, our personal projects are funded through our editorial work, which would, I would say, maybe be our day job, so to speak. And sometimes we we apply for funding, but being part of a collective helps. We encourage each other to enter whatever, you know, competitions are out there for photographers that our members would be interested in if they need help with their application, somebody to look through it, someone to to point some things out for them, someone to be a a reference for their application. We definitely are always there. How does it work when a job comes in? Because I know you do work for international organisations as as well as national ones. When we get work through the ZAFB, the client would have identified who exactly they would like to work with. So if the person is available to work, they do the assignment. If that specific person is not available, we refer each other for the job. So all the money that a photographer makes from jobs that they get through the ZAFP belongs to them. We have a, an annual membership fee. The fee is broken down depending on the level of competency that the, the photographer has reached. Student photographers, professional working photographers, and those who just would like to be a part of 
the association that the enthusiasts, even though we initially started out with photojournalists and documentary photographers, and it seems that most of our membership is that any female photographer that needs support can join our collective. We do exhibitions and projects collectively together. So we work project by project. So the last project that we did was a mentorship. So one of our pioneering members is arguably the oldest and the best female photojournalist that you know Zimbabwe has ever seen, I dare to say. So we named a mentorship program after her. And other than that, we've done exhibition projects depending on the theme. We've brought in the, the World Press photo traveling exhibition. So the winning images for that year came to Zimbabwe through the ZAFP. And we had a, a public exhibition. We put it in a, a public park. This year would be our 10th anniversary since we had Shutter Opener. So we are planning on an exhibition or uh, an e-exhibition or a, a book to just chronicle ZAFP over the years. What is the biggest challenge for women wanting to become photographers in Zimbabwe? When I do work as a photojournalist or I travel around the country, it's always a surprise for people in those different communities that the person with the camera taking the pictures is a woman. It's something that is so ingrained in their minds that a person with a camera should be a man. So I think the biggest challenge would be that, that somebody who is a woman believing that they can actually have a successful career as a photographer in any type of photography that they decide to do. So in as much as we have the association, I think we need to now create an archive of what we've been doing, how we were able to do it, and to make sure that that information is available in public libraries and things like that, because it took me meeting other women to realize that I could actually do what I've been able to do all these years that I've worked as a photographer. The development of Cynthia's photography career over the years and the support she got through the association is such a brilliant example of how important support networks are at whatever stage of their career. Cynthia mentioned that they're now thinking about creating an archive to help encourage other women to take up photography. A photography archive that we've been interested in for some time is the Feminist Memory Project in Nepal. It's a great example of not just collaborative working, but also the importance of an archive as a way that people, especially women in this case, can see themselves reflected and be inspired to take up photography. I think all projects, including the Feminist Memory Project, which I initiated by Nantara Gorongkakshapti and her peers at Photo Circle, are inspiring examples of how collaboratively it is possible to build up a totally new projects such as a festival, archive, and to make photography to be more visible in the country, to unite people through it. We asked Nayantara to tell us how it all began. For us, the journey really started in 2007, which is when we set up Photo Circle. Initially, it was a very loose group of image makers. Bhushan Shilpakar, who's the co-founder, he was a designer, so he was actually 
the only non-photographer in the group at the time. But since then, we've been working in very interdisciplinary ways. We started to get more engaged in, in archival work. So in 2010, Nepal Picture Library was set up, which is the digital archive that is a large part of our current work and interest and priorities. And then in 2015, a big year for us here because we had this very massive earthquake. That was the year we were already planning to start this festival. So Photo Kathmandu, we just completed the fifth edition of the festival. It takes place every two years. The Feminist Memory Project we initiated in 2018, it was kind of a response to the Me Too movement. And we were very interested through the archival work that we were doing to look at feminist history here. It's a project where we are on kind of this continuous research drive, uh, looking at particular areas of women's history. So, for example, looking at women's participation in organized and mainstream politics, how women were engaging with and shaping education and how education was becoming sort of a way for women to step out of kinship networks and enter other forms of social and other solidarity networks. We were looking at themes like travel how and how travel was really shaping the worldview of Nepali women, you know, looking at women who were writing, who were editing, who were publishing, and also shaping public opinion. Diwas Raja Kesi is uh, the current head of research and archives at Nepal Picture Library and has been very much a part of uh, initiating the Feminist Memory Project and is the co-curator, along with myself, of The Public Life of Women, which is an exhibition that we put together in 2018 at Photo Kathmandu that year. And we've just completed the exhibition catalogue. It took us five years. <laughs> We're very interested to continue to show the work, but also continue the research why you feel there is a need in this kind of digital photo library? Through Photo Circle, we were, you know, creating learning opportunities and engagement. So we were constantly designing and teaching workshops, um, mentorship programs here in Nepal for young photographers and visual artists. All the resources that we had to refer to, you know, a history of photography were mostly European or Western histories. And we were really feeling that, you know, this is not acceptable and we have to start from scratch to develop our own resources and material. And the archives and the collections of the Nepali photographers that we were identifying and finding very much told big picture stories about, you know, uh, larger histories of Nepal. For us, it was this sense of urgency almost that, well, if we let go of this material now, like what's going to happen to it, you know? And the archive was for us a way to look at the past and try to think about a way to create a space to think about other pasts because the formal historical narratives were mostly you know, the history of a very particular class of people, the ruling class. And so Nepal Picture Library kind of was this attempt to create a people's archive of sorts. When you started the Feminist Memory Project, were you able to get a lot of people submitting to it or was it difficult to encourage people? 
we're actually creating archives. We're saying that we want to look at a particular history or develop a, a particular kind of a lens. And then we kind of start the research drive. And so we are acquiring a material that comes in. But it's very much starting from scratch, you know. And for the feminist memory project in particular, actually, there was a lot of interest. It almost felt like People were already trying to do this on their own in whatever capacity they could, whether individually or institutionally. And when we came along, they were just happy to, I think, hand material over. People are interested in having their histories archived and documented. What is important for us to understand how you manage to sustain that, where is actually the support and financial support also comes from that it's possible to do something like that from the scratch. There is no government support here for the work that we do. And if there was, I don't know, maybe we would choose to stay away anyway, just to maintain a level of independence. There is very little support for the arts here. And so we end up taking on commercial projects and assignments in order to sort of keep the office running. So we take on photography jobs, design jobs, larger sort of almost event management jobs also. For the archive, I think what we try to do is really stretch whatever we can from Photo Circle and pull into Nepal Picture Library and similarly from Photo Kathmandu because the archive is what is hardest to fundraise for actually. But in the last three years, and I must mention this, because we are talking about the Feminist Memory Project, we were approached and eventually we managed to receive a grant from a very unlikely source. It's a large philanthropic institution based in the US called Foundation for Just Society. They're a feminist funding organization. This grant was the first time in our institutional history that we've received like unrestricted funding, you know. And so I think if we did not have that grant, it would be a very different story. At the moment, we're working on a new website that's been like a big project actually in the last three years because eventually we want this archive to be able to live online because at the moment it's only available on site. I'm wondering if you're able to collect evidence or information about how emerging women photographers might be helped or influenced by the project? Just generally speaking, I think the Feminist Memory Project and the stories and the narratives and the lives that you learn about is a very empowering experience. You realise that there are generations of women who have fought such brave fights, deepening our inquiries into lives of other people, I think that does do something to storytelling. We're also very happy if people do start their own feminist memory projects, you know, wherever in the world that they are. And if there is a possibility to network a lot of these histories, to share these histories, I think there's interesting, very unique histories, but there is also a lot of universal narrativizing that emerges when we begin to share. And so these are ways of exchanging and ways of learning from each other. We're very happy to try to do as much of that as possible. So if anyone's interested, definitely please reach out to us.
I was really interested and excited about the idea of other people starting their own feminist memory projects. And I think that's a discussion we could continue. If anyone wants to connect with Photo Circle about their feminist memory projects, you can do it through the website by dropping them an email. And Nayantara told us that they'll be running some online workshops and we're keen to take part in these later in the year and perhaps take this discussion further. And archives are such important sources of knowledge, yet they're so often biased, as with all history, by who is recording them, hosting them and funding them. Earlier in the year, we were invited to Miami by Women Photographers International Archive to launch the manifesto report for increased involvement of women in photography. While we were there, assistant researcher Elizabeth Ransom and I met with Tierra and Lovo at the Bunker Art Space in West Palm Beach. Tierra is the Curatorial Research Associate at the Norton Museum of Art, also in West Palm Beach, and she is the founder and director of the Baja Archives, a digital platform focusing on photography of the Bahamas that she started in 2018. And a big driving point for me with the archive is to find things that are inspiring for uh, the black community in the Bahamas. So I started this project mainly really as a response to the work I was doing in my undergraduate uh, thesis. I was looking at photography uh, right around the early 1900s of the U.S. South. It was very, very taxing emotionally. It was just very hard imagery to, to see in terms of, again, my focus really on the, on the black community. And so I thought, well, I love the research. Right? I do love digging and uncovering these lesser-known stories. Let me see what I can do with the promise. Uh, let's just type it in as a keyword. Um, I was really, really surprised um, and excited by all the work that I saw. And so in sharing it with the community, I'm hoping that people see just how inspiring photography can be, how impactful it can be. Um, I'm a firm believer in you can read about your history, but if you see it, right, it, it sparks something different in you, um, that you feel more empowered and engaged in a sense. So I think that through um, that platform, I've been able to really help inspire people through photography and, and also maybe have light bulb moments. Like, for example, like let's just say the, the first Independence Day for the Bahamas, which was uh, 50 years ago. And so the imagery that we typically see is then Prince Charles uh, kind of parading <laughs> across the stage and giving our prime minister the official documents. That's really all you see. But uh, I was able to uncover from a private archive these images of of Bahamians celebrating that day, right? Like dressed in all of our national colors and waving the new flag. And those went viral, I mean, with um, good reason, but it's just for people to see, oh yeah, like that's something I'm proud of. And, and to feel more connected to the memory and to the history of, of that event. And so you've been uh, distributing these images via social media through Instagram? Yes, yes. Um, so primarily Instagram. Um, uh, Thank goodness for Meta Business Suite, I can uh, cross-post them to Facebook, um, which also um, hits two different um, audiences, actually. So for the Bahamas, at least, there's Instagram as a younger audience and then uh, an, an older audience on Facebook. The response has been great. I think that the Bahamas depends heavily on tourism for our economy, and even it impacts even our cultural spaces. So I don't feel like the larger community goes to our art museums, goes to our art galleries, goes to our history museums. Um, so to be able to engage, to put it on the phone, it's a little bit like you take away the walls and it's like, oh yeah, you know, I, I can see myself in this space because I was actually at the um, Museum Association of the Caribbean conference last week and 
this idea of how Bahamians see a museum as a, as a tourist space that's not for them when it really should be definitely came up multiple times. And is there um, a community of photographers in the Bahamas? Mm-hmm. And are there any women photographers? Um, so yes, so there is a strong community of photographers working currently, like in the contemporary sense, but also since kind of that pre-independence moment of uh, the mid-70s. And yeah, the first photographer that I immediately think of when I think of Bahamian women uh, photographers at the moment is Mila Salasina. She's represented by Turn Gallery, which is a new emerging gallery um, in Nassau. I also think of Jody Minnes, who works with photography, but also uh, in sculptural work. Tamika Galanes. Uh, Tamika's stories and her, her practice is very, very intriguing to me because she actually was a, a fellow, a research fellow at the Library of Congress and helped develop more context and research around um, a collection of photographs by Alan Lomax that they have um, in their holdings. They've been sitting there since the 30s because um, he had visited Cat Island. He had traveled throughout the Bahamas recording folk music and then taking photographs along the way. And they had sat there in, in the Library of Congress. You know, there were names on the back of, of the images, but couldn't really understand them. And, and a lot of um, identification was in kind of our Bahamian language. And so she was able to, to go in and help with that. So that has uh, greatly impacted her now practice of, of what she photographs. How do you feel uh, younger people today are going to sort of, now that they have access to this material that they hadn't previously done so before, Mm -hmm. how do you think that's going to impact on the culture? My goal, (laughs) I I don't know if it's too ambitious or not, but is um, that the younger generation will will see these images and not feel perhaps as, um, you know, that their aspirations aren't as daunting. Or that uh, if we are celebrating, let's say, women photographers, that have previously exhibited in the national galleries of the Bahamas, etc. So just let them know that, hey, that's attainable. That's something that you can do as well. In the Baha archives, mm-hmm. do you know any of the photographers or are they just found photographs? Um, primarily found photographs, but a lot of the times I do engage in, in the research of the photographer to understand if it's someone who's not Bahamian, well, you know, what brought you to the Bahamas? What was the reason you came? And then also looking at like the National Gallery of, of the Bahamas and their uh, collection and understanding, okay, well, this is a woman photographer. Why was she hired by the National Guardian? Right? Why was she hired by the, the, the newspaper? Or, or what was the reasoning there? So I do dig into it, but I guess that's more like, is that shared with the public? Not as much, unless it's something very, very compelling that, that adds to that story. But I think for me, it's more about illustrating, at least on the public front, to illustrate uh, these different perspectives. I really enjoy um, listening afterwards your conversation with Tierra because I wasn't there, and also made me to think of my practice, my artistic practice. I often work with a kind of non-existent archives or, or old images, and I find it's very important and in a way rewarding also to find and define the gaps in the historical narratives and being able to offer some stories which were unheard before or um, recognizing some new names or like a photographer, as Tierra said. So I think it's very vital to give various perspectives on the histories on our past because it's never one linear story. 
Yes, archives are incredibly important and rewarding. Photography archives need to be recorded, they need to be saved, and it's really interesting all the work that various artists across the world are doing with all sorts of archives. In our next episode, we'll be looking at the photography industry and the art marketplace from the perspective of two women working in photography. We're keen to understand how they navigate this space, as well as how gallerists and collectors support and nurture the talent they represent. This podcast mini-series was hosted by Anna Fox and Maria Kapaiva, funded by a Knowledge Exchange grant from University for the Creative Arts. Audio production by Lucia Scatzocchio from Social Broadcasts. Thank you so much to all our contributors.